Good morning. Go ahead, grab your Bibles if you would. Uh, we'll be in 2 Peter chapter 1, and then we're going to be in Romans 5 a little bit, Matthew 24, so that we'll kind of be those uh, few places. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to download a, a U, you can download the Version app on your phone, and a free app that has the Bible on it, and we generally use the NIV, so I encourage you to do that as well. Um, you know, let, before, we, before we dig in, let's just go to the Lord again in, in prayer. Dear God, thank you so much. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for uh, the eternal divine Son of God who took on human flesh and went to the cross and paid the price for our sin. And went going to the grave to pay that price, but also rising from the dead. And that we might know eternal life, conquering sin and death. And Lord, we just thank you so much for that good news. And Lord, as we dig into your word this morning, I pray that your, your spirit will enable our minds to understand well what you would have for us and, and empower our hearts to embrace it. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Last Sunday, I, I went home and, and tried to recoup a little bit as I was sitting in, the, in my chair, you know, uh, just kind of watching TV and, and trying, to, trying to let my body recoup. Um, maybe even like many of you, all of a sudden, I'm on my laptop a little bit, and all of a sudden, across my Facebook feed comes the news of Kobe Bryant and uh, his, the helicopter crash. And, you know, my first reaction when I saw that was, was oh, this is like some kind of spoof or something. Like, this isn't real. And, uh, but then all these different news sources started to report it. And, um, and, and you guys know the story, at least a little bit of it. Kobe Bryant and eight others died in a helicopter crash last Sunday morning. And, um, and of course, the, now there's been all kinds of um, ceremonies and things, remembering his life, remembering his accomplishments. And, and he was certainly one of the best basketball players to ever walk the face of the planet. Maybe, maybe there's some, you can argue about, you know, is Michael Jordan better, is Wilt Chamberlain better, whatever. You can all have those arguments, but he was certainly included in that conversation when it comes to one of the best to ever play the game. As you think about these athletes, I think we often look, and we'll, of course, watch the Super Bowl this afternoon, and we often look at these guys, and we think that they are just these freaks of nature, which in some sense they are. They absolutely are immensely talented human beings. But I think sometimes we look at them, and we just think, well, it's all about talent. They just happen to be really lucky when it came to the gene pool. Like they just got all the right genes and they've got this immense talent. And because of this immense talent, they're able to become these professional athletes who perform these amazing feats and as we watch them and are entertained by their athletic ability. But the reality is probably much, much different from that. The reality is, are they, are they talented? Sure. Did they get lucky when it came to the gene pool? Yeah, in some ways, maybe. But the reality is that that the, the truly great players of whatever sport it is have something unique and special that has nothing to do with whether, whether they've got the right gene pool. It has more to do with what one psychologist calls the quiet eye. Dr. Joan Vickers talks about the quiet eye, and what it is is it's this intense ability to focus on one thing and rule out everything around them. This intense ability in, in life to be so committed to learning how to be truly great at one thing. 
that everything that comes to distract is just set aside. It's, it's a work ethic that is impossible to measure. As a matter of fact, the, the helicopter that, that Kobe was flying in when he, when he passed away, he got that helicopter many, many, many years ago. And one of the purposes of buying that helicopter was to avoid the commute. Now, you might think, okay, well, that's kind of, well, it's great for him. He can fly a helicopter back and forth to work. But you need to understand why he wanted to avoid the, the commute. Because this commute would take, I don't know, an hour or whatever it was, or two hours. You know, the traffic in, 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 in the LA area is horrible. And what he saw isn't so much that I just don't want to sit in traffic. What he saw was I can get there in 15 minutes, and that gives me an extra 45 minutes to be on the court practicing. And then I can stay 45 minutes longer because I can get in my helicopter and be back home in 15 minutes. That was his, at least one of his purposes in buying that helicopter. He was so committed to being on the court, to working hard, to persevering through all the different things that he persevered through when it came to injuries and all these other things that he bought a helicopter so that he could be on the court more. The quiet eye, as Dr. Joan Vickers calls it, is a laser-like focus that allows not just elite athletes, but people who are elite in anything to be able to focus exclusively on what it is they're becoming great at. Angela Duckworth, another uh, psychologist, wrote a book called Grit, and in the book she she evaluates um, the intellectual ability, people who... Uh, make it intellectually and education and things like that. And, 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 sh- and what she found, found is this. Nobody wants to show you the hours and hours of becoming. They'd rather show you the highlight of what they've become. And when we look at Kobe Bryant, we see the highlights. We see the dunks. We see the crossovers. We, we, we see the amazing plays, but what we don't see is the hours and hours and hours and hours of time spent in the gym perfecting the jump shot, perfecting the crossover, perfecting whatever move it is that he's working on so that he can be truly great. As a matter of fact, it's a, it's a sense of perseverance. Second, second Peter, in Second Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter exhorts us to add to our faith this thing called perseverance that these, many of these athletes have. He says this, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and self-control perseverance. As we've gone through this series of, called Unlocking the Secrets of the Christian Life, We started with faith and we talked about how we have to have this foundation of faith and then we talked about how we had to furnish that with with goodness or virtue and then with knowledge and then with self-control and now we get to the point where Peter says you have to have perseverance. The unfortunate part of perseverance is this. Suffering is required. Suffering is required. You know, a lot of times we... We approach our Christian faith as if it's the answer to all the things that are wrong in our life. And in, in a certain sense, it absolutely is. It's an eternal answer. But sometimes we think that if I, if I just trust God enough, he'll take away all of my problems. Yet when we look at scripture, when we look at the big biblical story, that's not what we see. We don't see God taking away the problems from people like Job. 
Instead, what we see is this idea that suffering is required. If if you're going to live the Christian life, you need to know suffering is required. It's, it's part of the Christian life. You don't get to walk through the Christian life and everything is just peachy keen, so to speak, right? It's not, it's not gonna be easy. It, there's gonna be difficulties. There's gonna be hardships and, and suffering can come in all different forms, right? It can, it can come in the loss of, of people that we truly love or it can, it can come in illness that we have to struggle with or, or it can come in, in, in a variety of other ways. Maybe we, we're gonna end up suffering from chronic pain and we think about that kind of suffering but there's a, another kind of suffering as well. It's not just about the physical things that we might experience, the medical difficulties we might have, it comes with the kind of suffering that goes beyond that. The kind of suffering that, that includes living a Christian life and, and standing up to what the world says ought to be right. To standing up for the virtues and the goodness that we find in Scripture. And as a matter of fact, we've talked about that the last couple of weeks, right? Add to your faith or furnish your faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control. And those are very counter-cultural attributes. This whole idea of virtue, the, the virtues of the world are, can be summed up probably in, in, in two words. Embrace and consent. Embrace whatever feelings you have, and as long as you do whatever you want to do with other people who are consenting to it, then life is good. That's all that there is, but the virtues that we find in Scripture are much different from that. The virtues we find in scripture find their source in a good God. And when we begin to align our lives with the virtues of God, the, the world looks at that with, the, looks down on that with a little bit of ire sometimes. They look, they look at that and they, they condemn it. And, they, and, and, and often we'll, we'll look at Christians and say, the life that you live is contrary to how the world ha- has its virtues and therefore you end up being persecuted. You end up perhaps being experiencing suffering. As a matter of fact, you think of the Apostle Paul. And he was intimately familiar with that kind of suffering. He was beaten. He was thrown in prisons. He was shipwrecked uh, on his way to prison. He was over and over and over again. What we see with Paul is that, is that he preached the good news of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel, and for that, living that Christian life, he was condemned by the world. And he experienced various kinds of suffering. As a matter of fact, we can look at Romans chapter five and he talks about this idea of perseverance and, and knowing that the suffering that must be experienced, he writes this, he says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. Paul knew the kind of suffering that he was talking about. He had experienced it. He had seen it face to face. He had felt it. And in living the Christian life, he went through that suffering. And he doesn't only go through it, but he says we should glory in our suffering. I mean, think about that for just a moment. The idea of glorying in our suffering. The world actually comes, around, comes along and says, do whatever you can 
to avoid suffering. And I, don't, I don't necessarily think we should seek it out. I don't think that's a good idea. But when it comes, when it's there, when we experience, we should glory in it. Why? Why should we glory in it? Because, because when we glory in it, we realize that suffering produces this concept of perseverance. And that perseverance produces character. And that character produces hope. Suffering is to be expected. Doesn't that make you want to live the Christian life? But suffering produces something. Perseverance produces character. You know, growing up, I, uh, I spent a lot of time working on cars a lot, lot more time working on cars than I really would have liked. I don't like working on cars. A, a lot. Some people love it. They're like, man, if I can just spend time in the garage working on a car, like I'm so happy. And I, I just, I, I have a different idea of what happy looks like, I guess, you know? And, and, but, I, but I grew up, we didn't, we didn't have a lot. I had, I had a bunch of brothers and, and we didn't have a lot of money. And so it was, you know, the cars that my parents drove were kind of old. The car that I drove, my first car, if I remember right, I'd spent $400 on it. Um, which, which tells you that I spent much more along the way to fix it constantly because it was constantly being broken. But we didn't, the idea of taking the car and bringing it to a mechanic to fix, like we couldn't afford it. There was no way. So we didn't do it. So we had tools, we had a garage, and, and, and we had the car and we had our hands. And that's what we had. And it was, you know, just for some of y'all that don't, don't really remember the pre-YouTube days, like when something went wrong with the car, you don't just go, oh, I'll just look it up on YouTube and see how to fix it. Like there, that was not available, right? Like you, you didn't do that. It was, it was you, just gotta, you just gotta figure it out. Maybe you can go to the, the auto parts star, store and buy a Chilton's manual, right? And he's laughing because he knows what I'm talking about, right? And you buy the Chilton's manual and, and you go, this, this manual will have all the information I need, which is a complete lie by the publisher, because I bought it many times thinking, I, I don't know how to fix my car. I went. So you go in and you begin to fix your car. Now here's, here's the thing about fixing cars, and especially when you're just figuring stuff out, at least as a teenager. And something happens as a teenager, you start to get stronger and you don't really realize that you're getting stronger. And that matters when you're working on a car because here's what happens. You start working on the car, maybe you have to say, I don't know, take the exhaust off. And if you live in Minnesota, one thing you know about the exhaust is that if the car is more than two years old, it is completely rusted. And everything is seized together. And so you take your, your wrench or your ratchet and you're like trying to break it. And by break it, I mean break it loose. And so you're like, you're like cranking on it. Some of the guys are like, oh my goodness, I know this story. I know how this goes because you're all like nodding right? And, you, and you're trying to break it loose and you're laying on your back, you know, and probably on the concrete and probably it's January. And in, in my case, it was Minnesota. So it's freezing and you're spoon, And then all of a sudden you start, you start hammering it with your own hand like that. And pretty soon it breaks. And I don't mean it breaks loose. I mean, you broke the bolt. <laughs> and as you broke the bolt, you didn't just break the bolt. You broke your knuckles too. Because as soon as it let loose, you went wham, and you just punched whatever was around there. And now your knuckles are all bloody, and you're bleeding, and, and you're angry, and you're, you, you want to say bad words. And even as a teenager, though, I, didn't, I tried not to do that, so I didn't say those bad words, but I wanted to. And, and, my, and, and my dad was there because he's telling me how to do stuff. And then he'd just kind of go... <clears throat> 
builds character, boy. And I hated that so bad because I heard that so many times growing up. Builds character, boy. And it, and it frustrated the living daylights out of me. And it wasn't until years later that I came across Romans 5. And I still, to this day, I should ask him. I don't, I don't know if he knows that he was like referring to scripture, but he was. This whole concept of perseverance, it does, it builds character. And I always wanted to just look at him and say, I got enough character, I don't need any more, you know. But apparently I was wrong. I need a lot more character. Perseverance builds character. When suffering comes and we have to endure it, whatever the kind of suffering is, it does, it builds character in us. And as a dad, there's nothing more that I want, want for my son than for him and my daughter, than for them to develop character. I want them to be people of character. When suffering comes and we learn to persevere, and especially in our spiritual life, it gives our, our, our spiritual life character. And we need it desperately. You begin to think about applying this to your life. And I, I want to suggest that we begin to apply this first and foremost by doing the opposite of what the world does. Instead of running from suffering, when suffering comes, we actually embrace it. We go headlong into it. Not that we're seeking out suffering. I think that's a whole different kind of disorder, right? But when it comes, when suffering shows up in our life, whether it's physical suffering or, 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 or some kind of persecution because of the way you choose to live or, or whatever the case might be, when you, when you are in a situation and the choice is do wrong, go along with the world, avoid suffering, Number one, that's a lie. You won't avoid suffering. You'll just experience it in a different and much more significant way later on. And the other choice is to do good and to do right, knowing that when you do that, the suffering might not go away. It might increase. That we choose the second and the harder option to embrace suffering in our life and look for the character that it might produce in us. Don't run from suffering. The Christian life will have suffering, and when we experience it, we should realize, we should realize that. And the mantra that was repeated to me as a teenager when I would scrape my knuckles has now become self-talk. Instead of my dad saying, saying it to me, Perhaps in my dad's voice, in my own head, I now say, John builds character. Builds character. Embrace the suffering that awaits. But even as parents, I often think about this idea, and we, we look at our kids, and again, we, we send our kids off to school or, or whatever, and, and oftentimes in school, the message to our kids is, is do whatever you can to avoid suffering. And, 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 and school counselors and teachers, all with good intentions, sometimes will give our kids the wrong message. 
And, and, and they'll give them the message, you need to embrace whatever it is that helps you to avoid suffering. Sometimes what we ought to do is we ought to watch them and when they experience suffering, instead of bailing them out, instead of saving them, instead of helping them out of the situation, sometimes we need to stand there and watch and do what my dad did and maybe even get a tiny little bit of joy out of it. Kind of smile and look at our kids and say, builds character. Let them experience the suffering because it's so much more important that when they come out the other side of that, that they are people of character. It's much more important that they grow in their knowledge and their understanding and their belief in God and in Jesus Christ and what he's done for them, that they grow in that, that they learn to trust him, that they learn to have faith in him. That is so much more important than removing them from a difficult situation. As parents... It's important that when they struggle that we don't bail them out. And maybe it's bad if we take joy out of it, if we get joy out of it. But nevertheless, in the end, those old sayings that our parents maybe said to us, rub dirt on it, right? Or create, or, or, or builds character. Maybe those had purpose and meaning and we should pass that on to the next generation. Perseverance, though, is salvation. Perseverance is salvation. Now, here we're going to dive into something that can get a little bit highly theological and somewhat technical aspect of theology, and I I don't want you to think the wrong thing. So I'm going to make some qualifications before we dive into this part of the message qualifications and nuance can sometimes be important. So when I say perseverance is salvation, what I am not saying is I am not suggesting that that somehow salvation is held out at the end of our life as a carrot and that if we persevere that someday it will actually be given to us. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that it is actually the opposite, that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you receive salvation and perseverance, especially in our spiritual life, is what grows out of that salvation. It is a confirmation of our salvation. Salvation is given to us by the grace of God. It is not something we earn. Instead, perseverance in the midst of a morally compromised world is what confirms our salvation. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples in in Matthew uh, chapter 24, he was talking about the, the eschaton, the end times, what is, what is yet to come. And, and they, they were asking him these questions. And, you know, Jesus, when will you set up your kingdom? And all of these things. And he's, he begins to launch into this uh, diatribe, if you will, where he begins to talk about all of these different things that must happen. This is going to happen, and that's going to happen. And, and, and when, this is, when this happens, you know, behave in this way, and all of these kinds of things. And he's telling them about the things that must happen before the end will come before he sets up his eternal kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 and 13, this is what he says. He says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now the word that's translated stands firm there It's the same word that's used in in Romans 5, and it's the same word that's used in 2 Peter chapter 1, and you could 
just as well translate it slightly different and put it this way. But the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. The one who perseveres to the end who will be, will be saved. Perseverance is salvation. So what Jesus is saying here is because of, because of the wickedness that, that they will find in the world, they, there's gonna have to be a way in which they will persevere in that world am, amongst the wickedness that, is, that it develops. In the same way, when Peter was writing this, his letter in 2 Peter and he was writing to the, the believers in Asia Minor and, and he was trying to encourage them, to exhort them in their faith because the, the context in which they were exercising their faith was a wicked context. There were, there were false teachers and they were coming in and they were not only teaching things that were false from a theological standpoint, they were teaching things that were false from a moral standpoint. In other words, there were all kinds of temptations to follow the leading of these leaders to embrace things that were immoral, to embrace things that weren't true. And when Peter was writing to them, he was writing them and saying, look, if you, you, God's given you everything you need for the Christian faith. He wants you to be effective in your, in your Christian life. And he, and he started with faith and he, and, he, and he adds virtue and to that he adds knowledge and to that he adds self-control. And now he adds this idea of perseverance built upon the, the latter rungs of all these other things as they begin to, in, in a sense, climb this this ladder that will lead them to a full and complete faith, to a, a godly life brought into alignment with Jesus Christ. And he says, you are gonna have to persevere. You know what's good. You know what the virtues are. You've added that to your faith, right? You, 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 you're knowing things. You're learning things. You're adding knowledge, not just knowledge about God, but knowledge of God. And you're adding that to your faith. You're, you're, you're exercising self-control and discipline in your spiritual life and you're adding that to your faith. And now with all of those things in place, you're gonna have to persevere. And perseverance, as Jesus talks about, leads to salvation. Now, the point isn't that it earns you salvation. Rather, it is this, that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you put your faith in God and you begin to build these things on top of it and you add perseverance to it, that the one who has put their faith in, in, in Jesus, that one, that person will persevere. Salvation is already there. The, the perseverance confirms the salvation. If you've ever been in a place where you've wondered, man, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know where my faith is at. I don't know if I'm saved. Maybe you've, you've questioned that in some way. And, and what I would tell you is this, that if you're asking the question, you're probably in a really good spot. Because in a sense, you're looking at your faith and you're going, I want to build my faith. I want to have assurance. And the way we have assurance is by adding these things to our faith. And, and as we add them, it gives us assurance that I, in fact, have been saved by Jesus Christ. He has forgiven my sins. He has paid the price. I have put my faith in him because even in the midst of trouble and suffering, however that comes to me, no matter what that looks like, I'm continuing to persevere in my faith. I'm continuing to grow in my faith. The idea isn't that you live a perfect life. I mean, that is the idea in a sense, but we all fail at it. 
The idea is this, that, that when you fail at living this perfect life, you don't run away from God, you run to God and you receive the gift of forgiveness. Knowing that he has already given you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And once again, we find our eyes in this passage as Jesus talks to the disciples. We find our eyes fixed on the horizon looking for the world that is beyond this one. We've talked about this a lot lately, but we don't talk about it enough. Our hope is not in the fallen world we live in. This is really important for us to understand. If we don't embrace this hope that we have that goes beyond this world, then the whole idea of perseverance is kind of worthless. We persevere because we look forward to that hope that we have in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, that was the context in which Jesus was talking to his disciples in Matthew 24. He was saying, no, there is something yet to come. There's something more. I will return. I will set up my kingdom. There is something more. And we see this new heaven and this new earth in Matthew 19. And we, and, and we, and we look forward to this, this kingdom that will come where there will be true justice and true righteousness because we won't be able to screw it up because Jesus will be king. And we look forward to that time. That is where we find our hope. And it is only then that perseverance ends. It is only then that perseverance ends. We persevere until the hope of Jesus Christ comes to fruition. The Christian life is a life of perseverance in this world with hope for the next. The Christian life is a life of perseverance in this world with hope for the next. Kobe Bryant has been in the news a lot. And all of a sudden, people are quoting him, and I just figured I might as well join the team. But he said something that I think is instructive for us in our Christian faith. He said this, he says, I have nothing in common with lazy people who blame others for their lack of success. Great things come from hard work and, and, from hard work and perseverance, no excuses. The Christian life isn't something that just happens to you. The Christian life isn't the kind of thing, you don't just sit on the couch and go. And the Christian life happens to you. There is work involved. There is effort involved. To follow Jesus isn't, isn't easy. It's not, a, it's not a walk in the park. Salvation part is easy, but that's because he has already done all the hard work. He already went to the cross. He already sacrificed his life. He already went to the grave. He already rose again. He conquered sin and death, and he gave it to us freely. It's easy for us to receive salvation, but to live that out, to put our life in alignment with the life of Jesus, that takes work. That takes work. It's, the Christian life isn't a get-rich scheme. It isn't a magic formula to scare away difficulty and suffering in life. Quite frankly, the Christian life isn't for the lazy. The Christian life is worth pursuing. It's worth striving after. 
It's worth working hard for. It's worth all of those things. The kingdom of God is coming. And we live this life doing everything we can to put our life in alignment with the kingdom of God so that when it comes, we will fit in just right. Angela Duckworth said something else in her book, Grit, which, by the way, is very much worth the read. She said, to be gritty is to resist complacency. To be gritty is to resist complacency. Do you feel like your spiritual life is complacent? Do you come to church sometimes and just go, man, you know, I just feel like I'm I'm just going through the rituals. I get up on Sunday morning and I come to church and I love the people. Man, Grace Fellowship's people are amazing. You guys are all amazing. But I still feel like there's something more in my spiritual life. Persevere. Persevere. Put disciplines, as we talked about last week, into your life. Spiritual disciplines, put them in your life. Begin to look at the Christian life not as something that kind of happens to you as you go through the rest of life, but rather the holiness of God that you pursue becoming real in the life that you live and pursuing that with everything you have, not being complacent, not being lazy spiritually, but embracing and seeking those things out. That's the Christian life. It's not the life of ease. It's the life of work. But it's a life worth living because we look at the horizon, at the life beyond this life, knowing that perseverance will not be required there because there will be no suffering. We will be able to glory in the glory of God. Do you feel like your spiritual life is complacent? Develop spiritual grit. Add to your faith not only virtue, knowledge, and self-control, but perseverance as well. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much.